Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking Mattel Gesellschaft. During 1993, their US affiliate, Mattel Gesellschaft Refining and Marketing, MGRM, lost $1.3 billion in energy derivatives. It ultimately led to the demise of this huge German conglomerate. The events in 1993 presage two things. Firstly, the scale of losses that can happen in commodities and have in the subsequent 30 years, and also the challenges of getting risk management right. Much ink has been spilt by academics and business school students on what happened. Today, we're going to have a look at the case again, and this time bringing in some new information from contacts within the commodities world who were there at the time, and also the learning that's happened in the commodities trading world over the past 30 years. Some things become a bit more obvious. Our guest is Kevin O'Reilly. Kevin has had a 30-year career in investment banking, sat across various functions, from sales to trading to risk management, and works as an independent consultant advising on just these kind of risks that organizations face as they look to manage their commodities exposure and profit from them. As always, you can help support the show by leaving a positive review on the platform you're listening on, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Kevin, welcome back to the show. Good to be back, Paul. Thanks for having me back. So I'm, I'm really excited to have this discussion. First off, uh, we obviously you were on the show last year in one of our more popular episodes talking about the, the history and future of investment banks in the commodity space. Still very much a, a, a current discussion today, and I think one that we can probably update in a few months as well. And I know you've also been uh, looking into the history of commodities and some other things as well, which hopefully we'll hear more about in the future. But we've been wanting to do this episode for a while, looking into Mattel Gesellschaft, henceforth known as MG, which in 1993, so this is the 30th year anniversary of it, uh, suffered a, a near $2 billion loss at the time through derivatives in commodities. And much of this event presaged some of the, the future challenges and I think is a fascinating case study of all the the challenges and the opportunities prevalent in the market. It's also fair to say that this is a story that has been picked over by academics in that intervening 30 years. And actually, you know, we can't find in our research for it, Kevin, kind of the the commodities professional analysis of what happened, or at least not publicly. And we should have a word on sources and methods here. So we've obviously done a lot of research into this on what's available through the various academic case studies and court filings and so on. We've also reached into our network and um, had a number of discussions with individuals, some of whom were actually there at the time and were very close to the, the aftermath. Henceforth, you know, <laughs> known, as, known as our various deep throats and so on, And it'll become apparent why there's still sensitivity around this topic and still, you know, people not wanting to necessarily come on the record. So hopefully we're going to bring some new learning to the case and some new insight. But I think at the end, you know, this always comes down to a question of intent. 
and that's the hardest thing to establish but it's going to be quite a quite a journey it's a journey that we've been on it's kind of you know peeling back the onion and in this case that it seems to me that the more you discover sort of some of the less you understand about sort of uh, some of the what happened but let's start at the start that's a very long introduction Mattel Gesellschaft in the the 1980s late 1980s is a is a huge german conglomerate some 40,000 employees mainly focused in the mining and smelting of non-ferrous metals so can you just oh, let's let's talk about the company first so off you know over to you kevin thank you paul Mattel Gesellschaft was was one of germany's largest industrial companies or conglomerate, so more than a company, um, based in Frankfurt. Uh, it was founded in the late 1800s, as, as you rightly point out, as a, a metals trader and eventually came an eventual chemical supplier. And, uh, and by the 1990s, it had grown into an enormous company operating in over 250 foreign offices. Like all, or like many German companies of the time, it wanted to grow and grow and grow. In the late 80s, obviously, uh, for those of us who were either in business or teens and were old enough to remember was, was very much, uh, um, you know, a, a sort of a, a commercially led time, uh, for people and, 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 you know, West, West Germany as it was then was obviously the, uh, the industrial engine of, of Europe and, and quite possibly the world. Mm. So, um, MG had a lot going on and, you know, uh, like all companies, they, they certainly didn't rest on what they were doing. In 1989, MG appointed um, a new CEO, an Austrian-born gentleman, Heinz Schimmelbusch, um, as, 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 as their new CEO. He and his management team very quickly got about developing uh, even more aggressive business strategies to basically grow the bottom line, add some diversification. Before his appointment, MG Large had already decided to, be, to develop a fully integrated U.S. oil business. Uh, you know that when we talk full integration, it's obviously exploration, extraction, refining, storage, and transportation, or you know various parts of 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 that and various uh, levels of commitment. This sort of reached a peak in in 1989 when it purchased a 49% stake in a in a, um, a company called Castle Energy, which was a U.S. oil and gas exploration company. That eventually developed into an oil refiner as well. MG signed a, uh, as well as buying 49% of the company, they signed a 10 year contract to purchase Castle Energy's offtake, uh, their production and guarantee its, its refining margins. And this is pretty much where our story starts. That's, that's where the story starts. There's one more bit of, I want to put a bit of context into this as well, right? So, so you're, we're 1989, there or thereabouts, they've acquired this 49% stake in Castle Oil. A couple of things are, are pushing this at the macro level, right? Firstly, you've got the fall of the Soviet Union and the problem that MG face that Heinz Schimmelbusch has inherited to some extent is that suddenly the market is getting flooded with low-cost metals from the, the former Soviet Union or the collapsing Soviet Union as was. So that's pushing them to open up these other revenue lines. At the same time, you've got the opening up to derivatives you know of of the commodities market particularly oil markets we've covered we covered in in our first episode together right around this time can you just give us a the, the, there's a market backdrop to this as well so you've kind of got this um 1988 to 1990 you've got quite a run up in oil prices tied to kind of a lot of 
things going on at the time. Can you just give us that sort of context of the oil market at that? The Soviet Union hadn't quite collapsed in 89, but it was certainly on its last legs. The Berlin Wall uh, actually did come down towards the end of 89. You know, a lot of things are going on. And, and interestingly enough with MG, what a lot of people forget is MG had invested staggering amounts of money, even today, in greener technologies. So they were actually a, a big leader in in trying to make their metals businesses and their other businesses, and indeed as a separate business line, more environmentally friendly. On top of it, uh, as you rightly point out, there had been um, excess metal and oil inventory, market moves and such. So they were sort of hemorrhaging money. And as such, the, the sort of the need to diversify further and engage in, in, in new strategies, for want of a, a better, better word, really led them to sort of very aggressively push along these, uh, this new business line. So you've got uh, and we, we, you know, rising oil prices, you've got this sort of the end, as you say, albeit 1989, it wasn't the end, but certainly you had other former Soviet bloc countries breaking away and those then competing with Western Europe. You've got rising oil prices as well over the concern over the Gulf War. So let's just put a, a pin in that because that, you know, all of this ties together, I promise. So in 1991, they've created this MG refining and marketing. So let's just call it MGRM going forwards, which is this entity in the US to essentially handle the offtake from Castle Oil and then, you know, build business lines. And they hire this, this chap who's key to this story, Arthur Benson. And Arthur uh, was an oil trader from Louis Dreyfus Energy, who'd had uh, some great success. And you know, we're going to comment on this um, in jet fuel, and there are, you know, and and had benefited from the uh, the the Gulf War in that bet. Talk to that a little bit. Look, in in a nutshell, the, we we'd had price. Uh, rises in the 80s, uh, the price fell from sort of $35 a barrel in the mid-decade towards the, the low teens, towards the, the, that decade. The Gulf War, or Gulf War One, for those of us who are old enough to remember, obviously involved two OPEC nations and caused tremendous uh, angst and concern in the oil market. This obviously led to prices rising, Fears over shortages um, and backwardation in in the the, the oil futures market. Uh, one th- one thing we should remember is that oil futures market hadn't actually been around that long. The the TI contract was listed in eighty three. The gasoline contract uh, towards the end of eighty four, Brent eighty eight. Um, there had been a heating oil contract in existence since the late seventies. But fundamentally, there wasn't a huge amount of data to determine term structure and whether the monthly rolls were in contango or backwardation. Uh, I would assume most people listening to the podcast understand those terms, but if anybody doesn't, contango is 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 the the name we give to market structure uh, when the forward prices are higher than the spot prices, um, or the f- further out futures prices are higher than the, the prompt futures prices, and backwardation is the situation where the deferred futures prices are lower than the prompt futures prices. If you're long oil and you want to roll your position, uh, backwardation enables you to, to, to roll your long position into a lower price. So backwardation is the, is the friend of the long and uh, the enemy of the short position. Arthur Benson uh, was a trader at Louis Dreyfus Energy. Uh, he had been trading jet fuel 
and in the run-up to the Gulf War, jet prices had started to rally considerably. Um, on top of that, concerns about uh, shortages had led to uh, backwardation appearing in the, the term structure of the jet market. Prior to Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, my understanding, and I didn't speak to Arthur personally, was that he hadn't had a particularly great run or was sort of indifferent or really hadn't got any big positions, or, or rather he got big positions, but he hadn't um, got big profits to show for his time in the market at, at, at LDE. The Gulf War changed that. Uh, if you talk to many of the physical oil traders of the time, most of them will tell you a story about George uh, Bush 41 um, addressing everybody when um, the fireworks started and, and using the term regrettably, as he said that the, the deadline had expired and various traders around the world who were uh, very smart bought physical cargoes, waterborne cargoes. Um, a Morgan Stanley guy had famously hooked up satellite TV on the roof of their offices in, in, in London and, and sort of had that live link and were able to act accordingly. And um, the price rally and the ensuing backwardation gave Arthur um, tremendous profits. And so when Mattel Gesellschaft hired him to run NGRM, he was coming off the back of a big win and he was a big believer in backwardation. Yeah, big believer in backwardation. And as far as we can tell, you know, Arthur took quite a team with him to uh, NGRM and pertinent to our discussion later on, uh, including some family members. So, so, so he comes over and again, we haven't spoken to Arthur, but um, MGRM come up with this plan. The leadership of MGRM, which includes a, a couple of other people, um, come up with this plan to create this, um, the, 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 basically their big cell right which is um <laughs> and this is where it gets a little bit tricky but essentially the story that you're going to read if you go and google a, a columbia business case on this or whichever one it is is going to be and we'll try and keep it relatively simple there's there was actually i've discovered since some other products out there but this is the one you read about which is they say okay we're going to create at the time um you've got the oil majors coming into the market really competing with the independent oil uh, retailers the independence and you know it's a tough time it's a time of low margin it's a time of you know lots of volatility and challenges for these independent oil retailers and mgrm come along and this is completely unique completely disruptive there's nothing else out there like this product they, they come along and say look we'll sell you oil whatever product it might be but gasoline let's say there's there's some others as well there but for the next 10 years at a fixed rate and in this contract, uh, you can also, and this is going to again be important for the story, you can also exercise an option to uh, get out of it if the current spot price is higher than the, the price at which we've agreed to sell you oil for the next 10 years. So a fixed rate sales contract over 10 years. Naturally, this product just absolutely takes off. It's a phenomenal product for these independent oil oil retailers or oil businesses who are struggling with we're trying to get supply. So the physical side, they've assured supply, and they're also getting you know this long term hedge. So suddenly, MGRM. I think we, the numbers we can find is at some point they've got 160 million barrels worth of sales, which at the time you know is an incredible amount. So. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of what I've just said. 
And then, of course, this gives them a massive position that they then have to hedge. Yeah, so look, as, as, you, as you rightly point out, they had quite uniquely gone to a lot of independent retailers and said, we'll, we'll sell you gasoline and heating oil on a, a term basis at, at good prices. As, as we'd said, prices had dropped to the low 20s or, or even lower. And a lot of these retailers uh, couldn't before then hedge and were obviously squeezed relative to the, the bigger guys who had integrated businesses that could sort of inherently, uh, you know, manage the, the ebb and flow of, of, the, of the business and the margin cycle. So MGRM, as well as having this, this agreement with Castle Energy to, to offtake 10 years worth of products, sort of mimic that more broadly across the U.S., and it wasn't actually just small retailers. If you look at the bankruptcy filing, you see big American corporate names there, such as Chrysler Energy and a few others. Uh, excuse me, not Chrysler Energy, Chrysler, the, the car company. So as such, they've, they've created a, a rateable 10 year short. This option that they, they granted for want of a better word was sort of unique. They, they tried to be clever by saying, listen, you can cash out of your, deferred position if it, if it goes in the money and we'll split the profit. But they had created an option product where the, the strike was the deferred contract they had agreed, but the, the underlying process that determined if it was in or out of the money was the prompt future, which is not what typically happens in a, uh, you know, a regular American or European option. And as such, if, if for those people who are quant minded, um, that would be very, very difficult to model because the prompt future constantly changes, actual identity discussions, so on and so forth. One of the quirks of it was that the payout could occur even if their deferred purchase was out of the money, but the term structure was such that the, 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 the prompt contract was significantly above the deferred uh, contract. So that, that, first of all, didn't make a great lot of sense. Secondly, intuitively seems quite difficult to price and third from a hedging perspective certainly plays a part in 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 what happens and the ultimate risk management nightmare they walk into yeah and and it's kind of this and we're starting to get towards this this idea of intent but effectively and it's important to note as well this was for physical delivery all over the country as well and even if everything had gone right that seems like that wasn't really taken into account either or the basis risk in in this contract as well but nonetheless it's incredibly popular and MGRM end up with a, a, a sizable substantial physical position in the US market then so okay so then we have this okay how are they going to hedge it and there's no perfect hedge for these contracts right that's just you know other than sticking it in a you know buying the physical sticking it in a tank uh, you know ideally having zero cost of carry and then you know zero cost of transport and then delivering when it's ready but but they, they've done it because they because arthur and team believe in backwardation and lowering prices and now they've got to hedge it. Hedge they choose is a one-to-one, -one, which is important for later on, but stack and roll. So can you tell us 
very basically, very quickly, kind of what what is a stack and roll in this context of the head? Yeah, I, th- I think uh, before I get to that, we should just go into the the, the sort of a bit more into the, the contract situation. Um, first of all, my understanding was that MG thought the oil price would would continue to fall uh, originally, and so in the night in the early nineties when this product was offered, they wanted to create some short positions. Secondly, they were earning very significant margins relative to where, say, the implicit true, uh, for want of a better word, futures price of oil would be, uh, three to six dollars a barrel, which by any measure is a great margin, but back then would have been, uh, uh certainly very healthy. And on top of that, a, a three to six dollar margin on a twenty dollar commodity is a really big margin. So there was an awful lot of interest in pushing this product and growing the business and by definition the exposure. As we'd said before, the futures markets were relatively new and, and really the only the first three or four contracts traded and there was very little liquidity at all past six months. MG ultimately uh, also had to engage in the OTC swaps market and, and most people understand that swaps are cash settled uh, derivative contracts that reference some futures price uh, so that you mimic behavior of the future uh, without having to, to deal with the, the complexities of physical delivery in, in, the, in the system. Arthur's got a 10-year short and really only has three, four months of, of liquid futures available to him. The, the name stack and roll basically comes from the idea that if you were, say, short over 10 years, 160 million barrels, you, you may as well just buy all of those 160 million barrels at the front. So you could point to people in a very crude, uh, point out to people in a very crude way. Hey, uh, I've actually got no net barrels. The fact my barrels are at the front versus the back leads to all sorts of problems we're going to discuss. But fundamentally, the idea was that the, the long position is rolled every month. I, we stack up the length at the front and then we roll it every month and as physical deliveries are made or contracts disappear, we roll a little bit less, so on and so forth. So given MG's um, belief in, or Arthur's belief in, in backwardation, uh, two things happen. One, the 160 million length at the front when rolled in a backwardated market, market improves economically, the price goes down effectively relative to where it was purchased. Secondly, in a, in a sort of a, a, a non-volatile, non-correlated world would, uh, and then if you'd stop your business, the idea is you just sort of rolled, you stacked and rolled over 10 years, the stack shrinks, the rolls go on and everything closes out perfectly, margins uh, are captured and everybody's happy. The reality is that anybody who trades any commodity, particularly crude oil, knows that spreads themselves have tremendous volatility. Uh, basis risks across different commodity products within the oil stack have tremendous volatility. And as such, the only way that you can employ uh, a, a strategy, and I want to stress that the word strategy is different from hedge. When you hedge something, you lock it in, you lock it down. You know what your economics are at the day when everything expires. The position, the underlying client contract and your hedge together, mark to market correctly, exhibit no or virtually no P&L volatility. That is hedged. When you can't do that, you employ a risk management strategy. The term strategy is a very loose term in the sense of one man's strategies and other man's gambling, so on and so forth. 
But what you would hope to do is run some sort of variant uh, variance analysis that would tell you what the correct number of contracts at the front of the curve are to hold relative to the shorts at the back. We're not going to have a quant discussion. We've had a number of quant guests on, and I think that would be a great actual chat to have with somebody else, uh, maybe as a follow-up. But in a nutshell, you know the correlation between two stochastic processes. You know the volatility of those processes, and very, very crudely, people run simulations, and and, and you can do a bit of math and, and co- come up with a, with a hedge, um, for want of a better word. So I've spoken to someone who has intimate knowledge of what was going on at the time, that person was saying to me that the stack and roll would work, but you only needed to cover somewhere between 50 and 60% of the uh, those sales contracts to get an effective hedge. Let's come back to that, because that is ultimately, I feel, the crux of this story and the questions that remain. But they do this this hedge this strategy, let's call it that, this risk management strategy, a stack and roll. And if you go and look at all the academic papers, you can see lots of lovely graphs that I don't understand about sort of the various payoffs at different prices. But essentially, the whole thing sort of worked with uh, those hedges were fine with backwardation and rising prices. The problem was, and if we're talking, we're very clear about the dates here, we're sort of talking the latter half of 1993, prices start falling and the market, and again, I'm going to come back to this, goes from backwardation into contango. So what starts happening is that the mark-to-market on these 10-year sales contracts is great, but the, the hedge starts hemorrhaging margin calls and money to the tune of around $100 million a month, I think, in November at that point, plus, given you've got these this change in... Um, people are starting to cash out these contracts as well. So it's it all starts, basically this is, a, you know, a, those hedges start from a liquidity standpoint causing real, real problems. In a nutshell, we, we, we from our research and, and basically doing this a long time, we realised that, that NG are net long because they haven't effectively worked out the number of, of barrels they need to be long the front versus their term short commitments. Towards the end of the year, the oil market falls quite aggressively. Um, on top of that, with a, a market in, in freefall and uh, oil surplus growing, Contango returns to the market. The story of MG is, is, is often talked about in terms of, yeah, um, market structure ruined the company, but the reality is that it, it, it was ultimately their net length. So by September, so the accounts or the, the business year end for MG is September 93. There are two auditors. There's the German auditor, P, um, BWC or just Price Waterhouse back then. And then the American auditor for the American operations is Arthur Anderson of Enron fame. The German company or auditors have to report a 600 plus million dollar loss basis German accounting standards, which did not allow for, um, incorporating deferred, you know, positive margins, gains, whatever, but had to, uh, record the um, losses or the, the mark to markets on the futures, whereas Arthur Anderson had employed a different technique. And as such, you had a massive company serviced by dozens of banks with two very different financial stories. Um, having worked in a bank for most of my career, if you have a situation where the financial story is getting very squirrely and nobody can quite work it out, 
um, you tend to not lend them any more money. And in fact, you try and reduce your exposure. And as such, at the time when they needed more liquidity, their liquidity was, was, was drained. Um, on top of that, as you, you correctly point out, they'd seem to get into a kerfuffle with the CFTC and the exchange regarding the exact nature of, of the business that they were doing with their clients and whether or not it could have been viewed as off exchange futures trading, which now gets you a trip to the big house, but back then would get you a fine and a slap on the wrist. From my experience over the years, you don't want to, not that it happened to me, but you simply don't want to fall foul of the CFTC. The US exchanges in general are pretty savvy people and they do keep an eye on things. So NG had a very public confusing set of financials, um, a very public splat, spat with the exchange and the CFTC. And as such, their liquidity dried up, the market's falling. We've, uh, we've discussed, um, they are way, um, I don't even like the term hedge in the discussion of their, their business, but they're way over hedged, um, to use the, the vernacular, the correct vernacular. And as such, um, things come to a head towards the end of the year when uh, the management decide to, to pull the plug on the situation. They fired the trading staff and they it's termed the itchy trigger finger in one of the papers we've read, but essentially they look to try and hemorrhage, uh, to stop the hemorrhaging and as such uh, liquidate all the futures positions very quickly. This, this effectively lock, locks in their $1.3 billion loss and the alarm bells sound and the chairman and, and the CEO, who I think is still in, in his job at that point, have to bring in um, a seasoned investment banker to, uh, to, 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 uh, to put together a rescue package. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Ultimately, so Arthur and team are, Arthur's fired and will subsequently go on to have a lawsuit about unfair dismissal. And similarly uh, happens with Heinz Schimmelbush, who is somewhat, um, you know, goes on to have a phenomenal career and is somewhat sort of exonerated by subsequent events, at least legally. So you you mentioned the academic papers. So it's all done by sort of a couple days before the end of December 93. And if you read the academic papers and the backdrops of those arguments, there's these kind of two big buckets of theories, which is that itchy trigger theory and then kind of just the, the bad hedging or poorly understood hedging. And when when I was having discussions with, you know, person deeply involved in this, uh, and people, you know, the, the, the commodity trading view is neither of those are particularly right, um, which is the, the, I guess, the, the thing that we're bringing to this discussion. But the itchy trigger theory, if I can sort of give it a brief outline, and you dig in, is essentially kind of this, and this is what you'll read on Wikipedia, is at the worst possible moment, when the oil prices were at their lowest, because they would subsequently, prices would rise again in 94, the board get scared of what's going on here they, you know, and, and liquidate all the positions, realizing that loss. And kind of the idea is that if, if only they hadn't have done that, 
um, everything would have been okay. Like actually, you, you know, if they'd all done mark to market accounting, everything would have been fine. Now, you and I and in our discussions have had a lot of cold water poured on that. But that is the sort of the, the almost the academic position. And ultimately is also the case that Arthur Benson has, which subsequently gets dismissed in his unfair dismissal cases. So, so there's a couple of things that you, you really have to think about with this situation. MG are hemorrhaging money. The market continues to fall. We today consider credit risk, liquidity risks as much as we do when we consider our position sizing. A trader will have a, a, an outright position, a spread risk limit, a, a vega limit for his option book or, or his or her, um, so on and so forth. But after the, particularly after the, the financial crisis, focus on liquidity and credit became paramount because it was ultimately liquidity issues that forced the bankruptcy of, of, of Lehman and um, the problems of, of any number of the other banks. And, and it was liquidity that ultimately, you know, forced the US government to step in and buy everybody and, and stop the, the financial chaos that we lived through there. Uh, we read a number of academic papers. People were very quick to jump onto the limited data set that suggested for the eight or nine years that energy futures had been in existence, that most of the time they're in backwardation. And even over a 12-month period where there's backwardation in contango, backwardation wins out. So there was a lot of kudos given to the idea that the front-end length would benefit from a predominantly backwardated market. Secondly, if money costs nothing, which back then it certainly didn't. We've, you know, we, we've had an entire generation of people who've just joined the financial markets who, who have never seen a financial catastrophe and have never seen interest rates. But back then it wasn't uncommon to have, um, in, in fact, if 1989, I think interest rates were 13, 14%, all Volcker, um, various other people had to, had to do things, uh, to, to, to calm inflation, which was one of the reasons why oil prices had rallied in the eighties, which we should have mentioned. Liquidity today is a big issue. And so it is ridiculous to say things would have been okay if you just hung on in there and kept paying the variation margin. Obviously, if you pull up a chart for the next few years, prices go back up and things certainly look better. My experience over the years of whenever positions have had to be liquidated, it always seems to be the worst possible time. Interestingly enough, though, that is very often because <laughs> the market knows that the person liquidating has to liquidate and what they have to sell. If you look at Hamanaka, everybody knew he was 93% of the LME copper open. The Amaranth debacle, people were very clear as to what the positioning was there. Um, the Hunts, it couldn't have been clearer who owned all the silver. So all of these sort of financial catastrophes do have various things in common. They usually end at the exchange. They usually end uh, around issues with liquidity. So the papers talking about it should have hung in there, uh, I think, are, are a little naive at, um, at best and, and just in incorrect at worst. At the time... And we've already said that, and this again comes from our own discussions with people in and around at the time, you know, the those academics very much had an axe to grind, you know, or at least we've been told, about ensuring that the idea that futures and forwards were a useful and powerful and effective tool for these markets. And the idea that any one trader or trading company could influence the market was very much against that position. So their sort of argument was that, they, you know, there wasn't this um, 
uh, human action, this constant, you know, this the market didn't wasn't trading against or had no idea about the overall position, etc., which I think we're going to dispel in a little bit. The other argument at the time, so you kind of, and again, if you're, you know, you sat doing your case study at your MBA, you're going to be writing about sort of the itchy trigger finger theory, and only if it, only they'd stuck in, which <laughs> you just poured cold water on, is is kind of like the bad, it's the imperfect hedge argument, which is essentially, you know, a combination of, of poor understanding, poor risk management, poor execution. And, and it would, would inevitably have led to this kind of blow up. But there's a few challenges and issues with that as well, because firstly, these were very smart people doing it, as we we've you know, understood. And it comes back to that question of intent. And it comes back to this question of, as you pointed out earlier on, it was whilst it wasn't simple mathematics, it was available mathematics to figure out what amount of hedge was needed to cover these term shorts. And that was something around, let's make it up, you know, the 50% mark, not a one for one. And it's in that one for one that you get this massive hedge, this strategy, which the academics were pointing out, look, there's, at, at any given point in the life of these contracts, they weren't such an oversized part of the market. And again, this is from our own discussions, um, as to have an effect. But what I was told was towards the end of each month, it would end up that MG's RM's position would be some 90% plus of the outstanding contracts and everyone knew they were going to roll. And, and, and actually, that their positions alone caused the one thing they didn't want, which was contango. Well, I, I, I think, I think the, the reality is that they were long anywhere, overly long anywhere between maybe 80 and even 100 million barrels. The, the academic papers, to be fair, do quickly cotton on to that. They, they cotton on quickly to the fact that, you know, some sort of variance analysis would have, would have allowed them more effective hedge ratios. This idea that, you know, they should have kept them in the game is, is, is fanciful purely because, you know, that the market will remain illogical longer than you can remain solvent. And the reality is the market wasn't illogical. Markets do what markets do. They absorb all the information available to the oil market of, of, of the day. If somebody is 90 plus, I think it was at 1.95% of, of, of all the futures positions going into a role, then the people they have to roll with, which back then, of course, would be open outcry and the locals and, and various other banks and, and so on and so forth, are expecting this. They either roll ahead of time, which was we, we call that today pre-positioning, but back then you were allowed to do that. You're perfectly entitled to, to take a position in, in a spread ahead of what you perceive to be a role. Uh, this was one of the, the big flaws in the commodity indices that they suffered for many years before um, uh, indices sort of developed. And, and, and today that, that becomes very little. It's a very little issue. But, but back in nine, 1993, you know, everybody knows MG's coming to roll. It's contango time. So they're compounding their problem by their own size. Really, that their their activity compounds all their problems, their liquidity, their size, their so on and so forth. It, it's just a bad situation, and the blow up that they, you know, ultimately created was was is really inevitable. A lot of the academic papers do then go on to focus on whether there was a speculative element. I think being sat long, effectively eighty million barrels of oil, <laughs> it would be hard to defend that as ignorance. 
But again, unless we speak to the individuals involved, I don't know how much of that they thought. One of the academic papers from 94 references a, uh, an academic paper from 1962 uh, by working that says that in any hedge there is a speculative element and they go on to explain this in, in great depth. So some of the academics want to go with, well, on top of that, they were expressing a view. I think given how we started the discussion about backwardation in the jet fuel market and uh, um, the sort of the market dynamics at the time, it would be very hard to assume that there wasn't a speculative element. And I think with the ensuing law uh, suit that, that sort of culminated in, in an arbitration panel in 96, siding against Benson and, and 4MG, I think most people accepted that there was quite a lot of speculation going on as well. Putting a theory to you, right, is that it, when you look at the, the term shorts, and again, this is from discussion with someone who's relatively close to it, there's a lot of sort of flaws in it, which you've identified, right? One is, of course, that it basically assumes kind of unlimited money for all these margin calls. And it also actually ignores basis risk in terms of physical delivery. And you've got this sort of option get out clause as well for the purchaser. And there is this, you know, the, the sort of the third argument, which doesn't make it to many of these papers in, in any, and is kind of the commodity traders argument is, look, there's an element at which these long-term sales contracts are the are sort of the the bait and switch, if you'd like, for a massive speculative position, which is hidden in this one-to-one hedging. If you you know, and again, this is all speculation, but you say we assume that you know it was understood that you probably only needed fifty percent of the hedges on to cover those positions, but actually you could you could uh, justify having a, the huge hedge strategy on that they did express in a one-to-one and that was the ultimate goal of the the trade if you'd like and that was the, the idea that was where the money was to be made you know as opposed to these long-term physical deliveries it just the market went against it dramatically as a result frankly as you pointed out of the size of the position relative to the market and everyone else figuring it out meant that it was probably never going to work. But but that sort of, you know, and again, this is the issue of intent uh, and where the, the question remains open. Like, was it was it a bad hedge or was it actually an intentional speculative position that didn't work out? Well, I think, I think we can agree it wasn't really a hedge per se. So I would definitely say it was a very bad hedge. I think we've, we've, we've decided that it was a, a flawed risk management strategy. I wasn't there. I was still at university, although funny enough, I read about the article and it's what piqued my interest in derivatives. That's a, a different story in another lifetime. But I think it's very hard for me to believe that anybody could, could put this sort of net structure in place to, you know, report up the, up the chain that this is how we were going to lock in those three to six dollar margins we talked about and, and not expect tremendous volatility in, in, in the, you know, in the, in the, the PL statement. Unless people come on and explicitly say that, I, you know, I don't know. But I, I do think, thinking back on, on my own experiences of, of living through some of the other financial catastrophes, people certainly understood market structure and, you know, the volatility of different points in the curve and, and, and what could and couldn't happen. Not everybody understood it, but there were uh, definitely people who did. I, I, like you, spoke to a number of, of individuals who were there or thereabouts 
And knowing these individuals as I do, I would say that the banks at the time certainly had the intellectual capacity or, or, or capital to, to, to understand how to correctly model that, that sort of exposure. When we talk about the academics, it's, it's actually important that we remember that it was only six years prior that we had the great stock market crash of 1987, which I guess to the younger listeners probably seems like uh, some history. But anyway, what, what's important there is that the, the cause of one of the primary drivers of that was an academic strategy called portfolio insurance that basically nobody had accounted for the fact that the action of the strategy would collapse the market, which it isn't just that. There was Alan Greenspan, there was a 10% drop the week before, there was a fight with the G7s. But fundamentally, the thing that drove the stock market to drop 20% in a day was a strategy devised by academics that nobody thought one strategy or one activity could affect a market. So it's only five, six years later that you have a situation where call it a company, call it a strategy, call it an individual, but they embark on something that crashes the market and causes un- untold havoc. So um, it would be great to get in the time machine and, and take the temperature of everybody involved. There are a couple of, of, of interesting th- situations that happen at the end of it, and one of them, uh, a lesser-known character in, in the story, is a, a lady called Nancy Crop Goldie, who was uh, one of the founding members of Morgan's Commodity Department. She, she'd uh, left Morgan by then, but had helped out in the late 80s with the... Ironically, Deutsche Bank had trusted her to unravel the huge oil fiasco and losses at, at Kluckner & Co. And it was to her that Deutsche Bank again turned once they had fired the uh, the CEO and, and the trading staff. And she spent uh, several years, along with other people and some of the people you, you, you interviewed or talked to about this, un- unravelling the mess. If anybody's interested, if you Google uh, Mattel Gesellschaft and New York Times, there's a couple of very interesting articles uh, that talk both about her and her work and the situation that uh, uh, for, for anybody who's interested in, in the history of the oil markets and indeed... Mm what happens when things go wrong, uh, it's well worth a read. To read the, the sort of the, you know, the, the, those academic papers, you would assume this, the story just ends, right? It's like, well, Matelga, you know, MG board, liquidate everything, and huge losses are realized, and Heinz is let go, and, you know, it's all sort of done. And actually to say, you know, within... For within six years, MG itself is taken over by another group and no longer exists. So it was f- fatal to the organization. Um, they had to go, you know, they suddenly became beholden to banks that b- bailed them out. Actually, we've discovered a bit more to the story that's probably a bit less known, if at all, is that what they actually did, MGRM went on for the next few years to unwind this position. And they, instead of liquidating everything, they actually just pared back the hedge to a correct level, around 30% of the outstanding contracts, as I understand, and were able to recover, you know, to mitigate those losses, recover money from the margins, and actually over the next two to three years, went on to deliver the physical oil to many of those buyers of the, the term short. So, it wasn't, you know, actually the organization continued, albeit with, yes, as you say, Nancy and a different leadership, actually went on to deliver and, and actually made some decent money out of these contracts as well. So there's a little bit of a, you know, a, a truncating of the story to make the point in this. 
But I, I, what's fascinating about this for me is that actually this is one of those cases where you know a lot of money was lost, and nothing. There was no. There's no. Uh, there's no fraud going on here. There's no whiff of hidden losses or anything like that. You know, this wasn't malfeasance, so to say. This was a question of, and I think it remains. We're probably a little bit closer to the answer, but remains one of intent. I think we can discard the itchy trigger theory um, for a variety of reasons. And I think you can probably, you know, so then comes down to sort of bad hedging or intentional strategy that went wrong. And I think when you piece it all together, you and I probably come down on the, actually, if you're going to get an A on your academic, you know, in your case study at your MBA school, arguing the, uh, the, the, the strategy that went wrong or, you know, didn't include some fundamentals that now commodity traders absolutely are zeroed in on, you know, we probably come down on that side. Yeah, I mean, look, there, there were so many problems. I mean, even, I mean, liquidity to my mind is is a standout issue when you, when you look at how people tried to defend the, let's, let's call it the strategy, it wasn't a hedge. There was no um, consideration about credit risk extending 10-year derivative contracts to, you know, People right across the, the 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 credit spectrum was was you know back then people didn't think about those things uh, after two thousand and eight that's all we thought about. On top of it, you know just 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 this calamitous mess and and we you know I think we've broken down the obscure option contracts that sort of paid out when they shouldn't or couldn't. Um, the perhaps lack of thought given to how they actually would would physically deliver oil everywhere. Although that that doesn't really play a part in the, in the ultimate bankruptcy, fundamentally the, the 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 mismanagement or whether there was a heavy speculative element or, or ignorance. Um, I I know because I worked with with talented people in the oil market that back then everybody would have fundamentally understood what you should be long at the front versus short at the back. There were certainly nuances and improvements in in quant and, and risk analysis all the time. But interestingly enough, if, if during the course of some of my research, I came across the, the Group of 30 Derivative Report, which was published July 1993. And it is uh, 24 recommendations. Um, it's 30 years old this year as well um, for people involved in derivatives. And I read that report and I'd never seen it before in my career. And I would heartily recommend any body involved in derivatives reads that report because the recommendations given then, uh, first of all, if they'd been followed by MG, MG would still exist today. But secondly, uh, I think incredibly useful and, and actually would, would, would be relevant to what happened in 2008. So, so you know, one of the biggest uh, things and the first point they talk about is the role of the board. The board isn't there to be in the day-to-day management of the company. A board is there to hire the talent and to make sure the structures are in place for effective and prudent risk management. And you talked at the beginning of, of the podcast about family members being involved, which I, I, uh, I think would certainly be a no, well, it wouldn't be allowed and certainly would have been a no-no in my opinion anyway. But um, the board can be certainly faulted for not having the right structure in place, the right risk management team, uh, independent oversight. And really asking questions about the liquidity draw. When somebody calls you up and says, hey, things are going great, send more money, the alarm bell should ring. Um, and they clearly didn't. Yeah, it is. I mean, like, and this is kind of the, the whole 
extra hour we could go on about this, right? Because we you know what what has been put in place first, you know, now that would probably mitigate this, and also that that kind of. Uh, at a time when many organizations, producers, retailers across the commodities world are having to build trading and marketing capabilities in order to respond to the volatility out there, in order to respond to changing market conditions, and to particularly to get close to their customer. There's even the analogy of MG, you know, having put a lot of effort into cleaner production, and that not really paying off because of you know, a flood from the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union of metals. There's lots of analogies here. And there's kind of that, um, you know, that Latin phrase, quis custodiet ipsos custodis, right? Who guards the guards? And you know, on in MG at the group level, at the board level, you know, who had the skill set to really understand these strategies and the risks inherent in them? And that's a question I think organizations face today, right? You know, how are you how are you understanding the the risks, all of the risks um, inherent in these businesses? Because clearly, in this case, you know, they did as it pertains to liquidity. You know, even today, I, I I spend some time working with with smaller companies, and I, I, funnily enough, after our first podcast, I keep getting calls. Somebody listens to the podcast. I have a question, and very often those questions are around risks, which to to myself are second nature because of all the years I spent in in the market and in the banks. But it's it's evident to me that there is a a still a genuine lack of understanding about risk management. And this goes down to a lot of the consultants and consulting companies who brought in to talk to firms about risk management and exposures and so on and so forth. And discussions, some, I helped somebody out last year with a, a, a few things and, and it was shocking to me how little, even today, um, so many people understand about all the things that can go wrong. I guess if you work long enough in the markets, you become very paranoid and see shadows when they're not. But the reality is you want your risk manager to be um, chicken middle. Yeah. You don't want him to be Mr. Rogers. Well, um, and that's that's basically it, you know. The 13th man, I think, Israel is called... Well, the, 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 it stands to reason, right? Because it, it does, again, I agree. If you were to look at this case without the ability for us, you know, me to lean on your deep, deep commodity experience for 30 years in and around this this world and some of the conversations we've had externally, if you're, you know, business school and your next role is in a management consultancy, you the, the learning you take from these papers is this is a bad hedge or a management misunderstanding, a lack of oversight, all these things. What it wasn't was that fundamental piece that's sort of missing from many of these is actually MG themselves, by actions of theirs in the market, changed the market conditions to contango. And it was all about liquidity risk and other participants knowing exactly what was going on and trading against them. And if you think about the challenges, you know, in the volatility right now and, you know, the, in COVID, most of those stories and most of the, um, you know, when we, we, we're placing traders, you know, leadership of those organizations are asking, do these, do these people really have a grasp of liquidity risk when you're trading West Power? Do they, re- you know, because that's where the full out comes, the big ultimate losses, right? And and that's not necessarily, you know, that kind of somewhat goes against the academic viewpoint of efficient markets and uh, and um, the word anonymous markets 
and you know, uh, and and therein lies the challenge. It does indeed. You've got to get good people, educated, fearful, paranoid, um, but ultimately people who 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 spend their lives in the tales. Um, and and that's what it. You know, five, five years ago we didn't. Nobody was talking about having a pandemic. You know, six years ago, nobody thought England would 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 leave the EU. Uh, two years ago, nobody thought Russia would become a rogue terrorist state through its actions in in Ukraine. Um, hopefully, that's not too political. But we we just continue to 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 live in a world where where you know funky things happen, and then on top of it, the the level of of, of technological development. You know, the good stuff on the green side, the bad stuff on on more people on the planet, and we still have to burn more fossil fuels and all all that. Um, it just makes the world ever more complex and complicated. So at the very minimum, boards and companies have to have people in sufficiently senior positions who not just can talk about what the, the, the trading arm or the risk management arm or the procurement arm is involved in, but c- can really ask probing questions and get into the nitty gritty. It's, it's imperative if they're going to survive because Blow-ups keep happening. We had one last year. The the the, the excuse me. Uh, it's last year. The 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 nickel blow-up. The Chang nickel uh, blow-up on the LME. Absolute monster. You know, you'd think the LME had learned their lesson after Hammerdecker, but it would appear they hadn't. So, um, you know, blow-ups will continue, whether they're fraudulent or whether they're just the activities of of, of incompetence or naivety. But but the, it's it's a very real risk has to be guarded against. Yeah. Well, I think we could carry on for, for a while, but we'll have to leave it there. I want to thank, obviously, you, Kevin, but also all those other people that have, have helped us understand this story a bit better. And I hope that we've given some uh, some food for thought and some uh, perhaps, whilst not solved, moved the, the discussion on a bit closer to, to some of the essential questions about the MG case. And um, yeah, look forward to, I'm sure we'll do one or two more in the future as well, Kevin. Excellent. I'd love to. Thanks for having me and uh, good luck with the, with the series in this year. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services, and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.